Welcome to this edition of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. Our podcast this week features Ben Kane, best-selling novelist specializing in historical fiction. He is best known for The Forgotten Legion, Spartacus, and the Hannibal Book series. Eleven of his novels have been Sunday Times bestsellers, and his books have been published in 13 countries, including the U.S., Italy, Spain, Greece, Russia, and the Netherlands. Ben Kane was born in Nairobi, Kenya, as his dad worked there as a veterinarian, and moved to Ireland with his family at age 11. As a child, he loved to read, especially historical works that included medieval tales, Sherlock Holmes stories and fantasy novels by J.R. Tolkien to Guy Gabriel Kay to Stephen Donaldson. In his early adulthood, and as a genuine animal lover, and following his dad's footsteps, he studied veterinary medicine at University College Dublin. In 1996, after five years of college, a career as a vet began. Soon after, his love of history took him abroad as he set off on a three-month solo trip along part of the ancient Silk Road, visiting the ruins of Merv in Turkmenistan. It sparked his interest in ancient Roman history. Shortly after returning, he felt the urge to travel again. And in 1998, indulging his passion for ancient history, he set out on a trip around the world, which lasted for nearly three years. It was during this time abroad that he first had thoughts of writing military historical fiction and having a career apart from being a veterinarian. What started as a hobby soon became an obsession. And about four years later, the Forgotten Legion emerged into the light. Through hard work and perseverance, and with the help of his dedicated agent, Charlie Vinnie, a book deal was secured in the summer of 2007. That started a burgeoning career and a new chapter in Ben's life. In 2013, for an honorable charitable cause, Kane and two friends walked the entire length, 73 miles of Hadrian's Wall, Britain's largest Roman archaeological feature and one of its major ancient tourist attractions, while wearing full Roman military outfits, including hobnailed boots. They raised nearly 19,000 for combat stress and... In 2014, they walked again in Italy, raising over 26,000. A documentary film was made about their walk, titled The Road to Rome, with Ian McKellen narrating. Having visited nearly 70 countries and all seven continents, he now lives in North Somerset with his wife and two young children. Join us for an enlightening conversation and hear how Ben's passion for history led him to a career as an acclaimed author. And as Ben joined us via Zoom, the video version of this is also available online at Life's Tough Media YouTube channel. Thank you, and join the show. Uh, ben Kane, welcome to Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. How are you this morning? Hi, Dustin. I'm great, thank you. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me on the show. It's great to be here. And the accent, I, I can't make it out. Where, where are you from, Ben? Oh, my accent's all over the place. Um, your listeners uh, and viewers, Americans, probably a lot of them will laugh. Taken for Americans. I'm Irish, but I was born in Africa, lived here in England for a year. Then I grew up in Ireland, went to university there. But I have sort of mainly lived in the UK for the last 20 years, although I've been traveling about three or four years of that time as well. But basically domiciled in the United Kingdom for the last full time, the last 15 years, 16 years. Uh, that's quite a number of years. And Ireland's very pretty. I, I spent some time in uh, Galway, uh, also in uh, County Wicklow, uh, Greystone and Bray. You, you know the areas? 
I certainly do. I mean, Ireland's very small. The Republic is only uh, 200 miles by 300 miles. So, you know, there are probably American states that are bigger than that, I'm sure, like Texas. Um, it is. It's very green and very pretty and very, very rainy. Um, <laughs> I'm from County Louth, which is the smallest county known as the Wee County. It's only 15 miles by 25. And it's on, it's actually on the border. It's halfway between Northern Ireland, uh, between, I should say, um, Belfast and Dublin, literally halfway between. Uh, and as a, as a writer, I mean, you really can live anywhere that inspires you. And, and so why do you choose to stay in the UK? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to become an author, because I'm, I'm actually a veterinarian. I, I would say vet, but vet in America, I know, means veteran. Whereas here, when you say vet, it usually means a veterinarian. But that's what I did for 16 years. Uh, and when I wanted to become a writer, one of the reasons, apart from giving up my main job, was that I could do it anywhere that I wanted. I could literally have a laptop and sit on a beach somewhere. That was the, you know, the sort of ideal of this perfect job. And the reason I'm living here in the UK is because I came over first because of a, a girlfriend um, and I'm still here, I'm married, um, different girlfriend, uh, but uh, my wife is, is British and, you know, we, we got married and we had kids and the kids started going to school. So when, when that happens, as I'm sure a lot of your viewers know, life tends to, you need to kind of, you don't have to, but it's easier if you stay in one place. Where I live in Southwest England, it's in the county of Somerset, which is south of Bristol and sort of heading towards Devon, Cornwall. It's really pretty. It's full of hills. It's great for cycling. It, are love, people are very friendly. They, they talk with a really strong accent and they say cider for cider. Um, and it's similar to the Irish accent in that regard. And um, yeah, we really like it here. So, so here we are for the moment. I, I can't see us moving anytime soon. So I, I got to ask you, you watched Downton Abbey because my wife and I are hooked on that show. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that does not float my boat. Uh, I saw, I've seen a couple of the dramas uh, that were made into films. There was one that spawned it with Tim Robbins in it, I'm sure. I bet way back in the day, but that kind of historical drama leaves me cold. Yeah, it's got no guns and swords and blades. <laughs> yeah. now, now, Roman history, though, is your thing. I mean, so how did you get started writing from a, being a veterinarian, which probably pretty exciting in, in its own way, to, to author of Roman fiction, Roman history? How did you do this? Um, it, I'll make you laugh probably. You know Asterix? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I started reading Asterix books when I was about four, and I loved history in that form and then I grew I was a huge reader we didn't have a tv when I was growing up we so I, I read and I read I used to read between four and six books a week when I was you know wow. 10 12 13 and by the age of 13 or so I had actually read all the books I wanted to in the children's library so I went downstairs to the adult library and back then they didn't you know they just let you take out whatever you wanted so I started reading Louis Lemur westerns a very famous american author who wrote more than 100 westerns and Zane Grey another very famous western writer and the likes of Wilbur Smith international best selling author of historical fiction set all over the world and uh, Bernard Cornwell who's british but lives in america is pretty big there and fantasy was also huge. I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. So 
why did I not do English or history or something in university? It didn't enter my head because my dad is a veterinarian and I loved animals. And there was a very popular uh, veterinarian who wrote books in the 70s and 80s here in the UK called James Herriot on the TV series, All Creatures Great and Small, which may have made it to America. But anyway, um, it was huge and it was a very gentle, romantic picture of being gamers and lovely sunny sunny days it never rained uh, and so on and so off I went and did that but I've always my love of history never went away and so uh, I would have continued to read and and be and I was very you could say obsessed with military history as a uh, as a child so when we came over to England on holidays I would go to the Imperial War Museum uh, in London which is an entire museum massive museum all about the British Empire and war and I would spend whole days in there and then I spent a summer in America in 90 and we you know we were in Philly but every weekend we'd hire a car and so one weekend we went to Gettysburg for the wow. whole day you know which was amazing um, and then when I drove across I drove three months across America in 98 20,000 miles and I spent my time going to historical sites um, to the, we did the Ney Perse Trail in Idaho. We went to Little Bighorn. We went to the Alamo. You know, we went to uh, all the historical places. And then the same, spent a year in Central and South America. And I visited dozens of Maya sites, Aztec sites, you know, Inca sites, uh, conquistador, you know, old monasteries where they, the, the missions where they filmed, uh, you know, the film The Mission back in the day. Uh, so the missions where the Jesuits went and anything to do with history, I'm I'm there. I'm interested in it. So, so long story short, sorry. I mean, what, what is it that excites you about it? <laughs> what do you feel? Question, because my my parents are not interested in history. This is something I uh, just came. Ah, uh, what am I interested about? I don't know. That's a really good question. Um. I just I like I guess I like to see how people did things and how do their how are their lives similar to ours and how are they different and why did they do things and as I got older as well I, what I what I find interesting although sad is is how the same cycles have repeated themselves for thousands of years all over the different continents when people move and 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 wars happen the the repeating themes are frequently the same um, which is kind of interesting, ironic, and tragic, <laughs> all at the same time. So uh, the Roman thing um, is it? Well, I do you want to? Will I keep talking about that? Keep going. Okay, that's the my Roman bad. thing. I, I love Roman history, and I collect ancient Roman uh, coins. So th this is. Oh, do you? Oh, oh fantastic! This is where, ben, I, I'm telling you, I'm a big fan of yours. This is yeah, yeah, exciting for me. You should come over and live over here. I was at. I gave a talk the other night, and there was a farmer in the audience. This is in Gloucestershire, which is about 60 miles north of here, and he can just go out in his fields with his metal detector, and he pulled out of his pocket the latest wow. Roman coins that he's wow. just. Wow! I mean, think yeah. about that's amazing. Mm. It's it is it's really cool. You just dig a stick a spade in the ground and have get a metal detector here, and if you keep looking, you'll find something Roman. It is uh, now. Are you uh, allowed to keep it if it's in your, or do you have to give it to the local? Like what are the you're rules? supposed to? You're supposed to contact the locals, and he does. I mean, he literally records the place and then he brings them there because the whole thing about archaeological finds is that not a, their their importance is not just what they are; it's the context. 
So if it's just a few coins in a field on the side of a Roman road that some guy or some woman lost, that's kind of not that interesting. What's interesting is if it's a purse or it was buried or that you then find a building and in the building you find other things. And if you take them all out, all the pieces of you find out of context that's and you don't know what it is. But if you look at them all together, you can build a much bigger picture of what was in that place. So that's why, you know, thefts from countries when there's a war or, you know, something like that, like in the Middle East, there's been a lot, sadly, over the last few years. Um, and, and people go in and they, they steal stuff to order from these museums and then they're lost forever. Um, or they, you know, Tomb Raiders or whatever. Because it isn't just a game, people. It's people who smash into archaeological finds and take things. Um, so the Roman thing came from... Um, I had this idea when I was traveling for writing a book and then, but it wasn't nothing really concrete until I worked in Northumberland, which is in the very far north of England on the border with Scotland during the 2001, 2002 foot and mouth disease outbreak, which is a terribly infectious disease of cattle, sheep and pigs. And I was working on that as a veterinarian and it was, it was horrific. We were killing animals most days, but um, the line of Hadrian's wall runs through that county. So I got an idea of writing about Roman soldiers and the film Gladiator had been out the year before and that had really Rome. A novel about authors uh, writing about Rome were becoming common. There's a guy called Con Eagledon who's quite big in the States. Of course, and, yeah, God's yeah. very big. Yep. Yeah, and Simon Scarrow who, who, who has been big in the States, but maybe, I don't know if he still is, but so their, their books were coming out and I, I, I looked at them in the bookshops and I thought, my goodness me, so these people are making a living out of writing about Rome. Well, and I was very naive. I used to read all those books and I, I used to think I can do that. Yeah. So again, long story short, I started writing a novel about ancient Rome. I got myself an agent after only about 18 months. And he said that all they did was march <laughs> in my book, which he, and he was right. <laughs> it was set on Adrian's wall and they used to go up to Scotland and back down again and up to Scotland and back down again. <laughs> and it was basically quite boring, but apart from the fight scenes. So he made me write another book, which I did. And that was uh, this one here, The Forgotten Legion. And had a different book, by the way. Okay. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's funny. A lot of people say that's their favorite book of mine. I, but It's mine. I mean, like... The, I, to me, the way that you took a story that otherwise would have been a quick, this is what happened, here's when, you find this way to bring us into it. How do you do that? Like, do you close your eyes and go, okay, here's what I would have seen or here's what would have happened? How do you find that ability to create magic for readers like me? Uh, it's funny. It's just so nice to hear you say magic. Uh, I just, I do my best. Uh, one of the things, to answer it, I think, is that the, big, the most important uh, element of any novel is the story. Uh, that goes without saying. If you don't have a good story, it doesn't matter how amazing the facts are or how interesting the, the scene is. If there's no story, the reader will be bored. Uh, but a part of very closely tied to that with historical fiction is a sense of place. So if you started writing a scene set in Roman times and you, you, one, you, me, anyone doesn't make it rich enough there. And, and, you know, you've got to, you can't write in Latin because no one could read it, but you can't use words like, okay, either. And you can't say, Hey guys, what's going on? Because that's <laughs> yeah. not how they talked. And 
So you've got to try and make it as authentic as you can. And that's what I've always tried very hard to do. Um, so, you know, I've, I've walked 500 miles dressed as a Roman soldier in full kit with the armor, you know, 50 pounds of armor. Um, I've got swords and shields. So, and I, I do act out a lot of fight scenes in my office. <laughs> um, yeah, I have close to 300 textbooks on ancient Rome. And they're not just about the wars and the politicians. They're about social life and marriage and birth and death and furniture and food and crops and animals and plants. And, you know, I try and make sure the animals and the plants and everything are, are accurate for Roman times or whenever I'm writing about. And um, I use some Latin words and I used to use them like in the first book in the first four or five i used to use them to kind of show that i knew what i was talking about but now i use them a lot less but i don't do it for that anymore i do it because it just helps i think draw the reader back like so if i read a book set in the 15th century and there's a word like a falchion which is a term for a knife um and the author describes it but doesn't use the word falchion i kind of go you're shortchanging the reader there because they did call it that um, so, so lots of, lots of ways I try and do it. Um, and you know, I get bad reviews or comments. People say, oh, his language is too modern or I don't get it too much, but I still get it. And the, I always want to talk to these people and say, look, I can't write it in Latin because A, I can't write Latin and B, we don't know how they spoke anyway. But the second thing is if I write it in completely modern language, that's crazy as well so i try to get a balance between the two where it feels accessible but it also feels old and not but nothing is right because it's not in latin and we also have no idea how ordinary people spoke so nothing like not has been recorded like we, we don't have someone's voice being recorded from two thousand years ago and, and yet the expectation no, there's none. Is there's none. The, the only writings of ancient people the only possibility or, uh, or sort of information we have about ordinary people are graffiti from you know Pompeii which is usually about sex or bodily functions or both uh, <laughs> and there are an obscure or not obscure there's a very uh, fascinating set of wooden writing tablets found on Hadrian's wall called tablets Romans to write on on little pieces of wood this big like uh, four inches by two, and there'd be two of them scooped out with very shallow, like uh, a 32nd of an inch, filled with a layer of wax. And you wrote with an iron stylus on that, and then you, you folded them over, those two written surfaces, and tied them together with a little bit of leather or whatever, and sealed it with wax. Well, if those go into the ground, in, like in Hadrian's Wall, where there's no oxygen, the wax degrades, but the wood doesn't, and modern science x-ray and so on means you can read read the messages and they found loads of them now and they're from ordinary soldiers to ordinary soldiers things like i mean i am not making this up things like can you get me a hundred good apples this is one soldier writing to another who's going away from hadrian's wall get me a hundred good apples if you can find them and some socks and mind those roads down south because they're really bad that's the communication <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those things are very human. They they speak to us like the birthday. There's a birthday invitation from a wife of one fort commander to the wife of another fort commander, saying, "Please, can you come to my birthday party and give my love to your husband and your little son?" That's Just like some of my, yeah, yeah. So 
that those are the only writings of ordinary people we've got. So going back to the original point is that all conversation you write set 2000 years ago is artificial. So dear one star reviewer, how am I to write it? Do you know? <laughs> it's, it's, so let me ask you, I, I, three, I take you back in time to 300 AD. What do you do? What do you do? What's your career? I, I drop you off, take you back. What do you do first? If I was back in Roman times. Back in Roman times. Am I allowed to pick anything I want? You can be anything or pick anything, but you got to use your skill set. So I'm going to take you right now, and I'm going to take you on a journey back to 300 or 400 AD, before the fall, of course, or before the collapse, technically. Um, yeah, that's the bad times. You're putting me in the bad times. I'm going to say 100, uh, let's say okay. 100 BC to 150 AD. How about that, that period? Okay. Perfect. Yeah, that's better, that's yeah. Skill set. What you know right now, I'm going to transplant. You don't get to take anything with you. I'm going to take mm -hmm. you back in time. What do you do first? Where do you go? I would probably try and get a job as a scribe of some description uh, to a rich man because uh, I can read and write, which, you know, and I'd be fluent, presumably, hopefully, I could be fluent in Latin. Let's assume I get that power going back. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I'm not going to be able to talk to anybody. Um, and that would be a nice job. I, I wouldn't want to be a veterinarian or a met or a doctor because I would have to saw people's arms and legs off. Never mind that, given painkillers, there'd be so many conditions I would see and I wouldn't be able to treat them even though I knew what they were because the, the drugs weren't available. You know, the only drug they had that was any good was a painkiller and they, they had, I used to use vinegar as a disinfectant, but oh. with writing, reading and writing, they were very advanced in that regard. So. Now, would yeah, you maybe. have protection? I mean, so you're working for somebody that's super wealthy. You're a scribe. What sort of protection would have been? Would you have had protection or would you have been on your own? It's interesting. A lot of scribes that worked for rich men would have been their slaves who, you know, they would have treated well. And, and ultimately, they, they often freed those slaves and gave them enough money so they were then very wealthy. So I'm not aware of very many free men who are writing for somebody. I suppose I could try and write for myself. Um, it's interesting. How am I going to fit into society? What's everyone, is everyone going to think I'm Roman or? Right. I mean, that's the, isn't that it? it all the knowledge you, you have, but yeah. you really adapt. I think life would be unbelievably tough for someone of our, uh, I mean, look, you know, I'm nearly 50, but even, even a young person today, I think they, they would, It'd be very, very hard for us to adapt to that world because the social mores, I know a lot about them, but um, basically your average Roman was misogynistic, homophobic, deeply racist, um, and thought it was okay to put criminals in an arena and have them torn apart by wild animals. So, you know, they might have uh, written an invitation to someone to come to their birthday party and said, get me some good apples and been really friendly with their best mates. But um, that's where it ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the thing that it's something I, I find myself being drawn into commentary a lot, and I write it in my author's notes is that we desperately want people, when all human can want to identify with the people in the past, like I mentioned earlier about my, my, my interest in history. But what's really important is that we don't try and think that they were just like us because they weren't. Um, now, it's an artistic. 
what's the word? It's a, it's a construct in that you can't make every Roman character, especially the hero, you can't make him misogynistic, racist, homophobic, because if he is, no modern reader will read him. But it's important to still give that sense of that's what people were like. So I, I do that more and more in my books. It was one of my books. Have you read the Eagles series? I have. Yeah. Series. So no, I don't want to give it away for people who haven't read it, but in the third book, this, this veteran centurion, who's, he's, he's, he's sort of like me in that I've never been in combat, but he's 48 and he's, he's got loads of aches and pains, and, but and he'll do anything for his, his men. His men are, his, I look at them like a rugby team because that's <laughs> what I like. You know, you'll do anything for your teammates. They're almost like his children, because remember, a centurion would have had men under his command, sometimes for maybe years, even decades. Uh, and there's, there's a scene in this third book where one of his men is killed, and his reaction is truly shocking to the modern uh, reader. And I've had more emails about this centurion. Everyone loves him. Um, they, people have said to me, please keep writing about him. I do Kickstarter campaigns. I've done two short stories about him now, and he always wins because that's who everyone wants to hear about. But the point of this scene, I put it in literally to show the reader you might think this guy Tullus is cool, but when someone upsets him or really you know, affects him, this is what he will do. And his reaction is very Roman. And he's therefore, you know, how, I've had emails from, I've had a bad review on Amazon where someone said, I'm, I didn't finish this book and I will never read another one of his books. And like, that's fine, whatever. But I'd love to have a conversation with that person, just explain, you know, that's what he would have done. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, going back to that time would be a fairly, fairly traumatic experience. <laughs> would be. Now, now the food, Ben, could we eat the food? Oh yeah, their diet was amazing. It was, um, their diet was better than ours in that there was, uh, the only form of sugar was honey and they did have bee farms, but it wasn't available the way sugar is. I mean, sugar is just omnipresent now. We eat it at breakfast, we eat it three, four, six, you know, how many times a day might you have a cookie or, you know, sweet cereal? You, know? you, you got cameras on me? <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's because I'm, I'm, you know, I love my sugar, but the Romans, uh, okay, they had de bad dental hygiene. Um, they didn't know to brush their teeth, so that wasn't great, but their, their, their actual diet was great. Your typical civilian did not eat much red meat. They ate a huge variety of fish and uh, some poultry an awful lot of nuts and seeds and a lot of vegetables. And the soldiers were similar, but they did eat red meat because, you know, if you've got 5,000 men in a camp, you, you, you can't provide enough fish or chicken for them. So they, they ate cattle and sheep. But um, we know this from the sewers in Herculaneum, uh, which is, was uh, covered by the eruption of Vesuvius, same time as Pompeii. And Mary Beard, the famous Roman historian, she says, is it all right to use a swear word? <laughs> It's a mild one. I'll just use the SH1T. Mary Beard <laughs> says you can find out more from Roman SH1T than you can from a thousand sets of ruins. Fast. And the reason, the reason being is you can, I mean, they've been able to follow the sewers back up into the apartments so they know that the poo or the human feces that came from this apartment, this was a one-room apartment. So these people weren't rich, but we know exactly what they ate. This is a bigger house. This is what they ate. And you can find these extraordinary details. Like the one I use most in a talk I give uh, when I'm you know, talking about the Roman army is the finds from a sewer in a Roman fort in Germany dated to 9 BC, so nine years before uh, 
Jesus Christ or, you know, the nine years before the M. No, it was the empire. What am I saying? But um, it was it was still the very early days of the Roman Empire. And from that sewer, they have taken uh, coriander seeds and pepper seeds. Now, the only place in the world they came from at that time was India. And this was northern Germany. It was, you know, the limit nearly of the Roman Empire. And yet soldiers were able to get extraordinary spices. You wouldn't, if you couldn't find black peppercorns when you went to the supermarket, you'd be, you'd be surprised. But it was completely the other way around 2,000 years ago. If you could buy them outside a little northern Europe, hey, I my dinner. Um, and it, uh, it shows you the trade. No, obviously, no, no, that's the dog, sorry. Um, no jet. <laughs> I say your kids are quite, they've got a, an interesting dialect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you, so you wouldn't, you, so what my point is that um, even back then, you had huge trade going all the way around the world or halfway around the world, oh, which awesome. is it's quite amazing. And so uh, a question that I have to ask me being, again, while I am not as versed in the, the Roman historical side as you, is there one battle that you go, if they would have only have just changed this one detail, this one thing, wow, the outcome would have been so different. Is there one that's been in your mind for years um, that you've just, you've looked at and or one battle that is just from your perspective been one to rule them all? Um, I can think of lots of historical battles where you, you know, but for the roll of a dice or the, uh, the men who didn't go where they should have done or the ones who were supposed to arrive and didn't arrive, but n not so much with Rome, but um my standout roman baffle is cannae uh, that i don't know that that will ever change uh, it was obviously a roman defeat um i was i was asking a roman reenactor friend from italy once why when you go to cannae which is right down the, at the heel of the boot near near brindisi and there's no the museum there is really bad and there's not, no markers around the battle site and i was saying this why this should be a really big museum a really great experience and he just looked at me and he said we lost. <laughs> so uh, Hannibal's tactics there are still taught at West Point Military Academy today. Incredible. They I mean, were quite incredible, man. Yeah, because of the, his his men's maneuvers were so precise. All must have been given orders beforehand because during a battle that's spread over three miles in in length. You can't relay orders effectively during a battle. Once the battle starts, you know, it just unfolds. And But we, from what we know as men did, they were given their orders and they followed them to a T. Uh, and, and that was unique. Uh, it, it, it pretty much did not happen in any, any other battle that we know of. Um, so his, his leadership skills and his charisma, because remember, his, his army was made up of potentially up to 20 different nationalities, all speaking their own language. So yeah yeah really incredible i, I often there's an american author called john maddox roberts a very well thought of guy he's written uh quite a long-running roman series but he wrote a two parts of a trilogy about what would have happened if hannibal had won the second punic war an alternate history novel series now, i haven't read them because partly because um the third one's never been published hmm. um, they didn't sell well enough which is kind of annoying but uh it's, it was a really good idea but yeah you know if, if hannibal had won the second punic war european history would be very very different indeed um because the carthaginians didn't rule like the romans they kind of traded and they only fought when they had to 
and they wouldn't have expanded the way the Romans did to cover the area. So what would have happened and what civilizations would have risen and fallen? And, you know, because the Romans obviously had this huge impact, not just on language, but on legal structures. You look at your Senate. I mean, that's, that's the same as the, right. our, our buildings got, were designed to, to yeah. make. And the eagle, the American eagle, okay, it's a bald eagle, but it's copied from the eagle that the Romans used. And, you know, every church in Britain, you know, most of them, the lectern is frequently a golden, an eagle in bronze um, with its wings outstretched. And that's copying the Romans too. Uh, so European history would have been just, inc un well, unrecognizable. We have no, there's no way of being, that's making a, a reasonable point. argument what it would have been, because we just don't know. And so let me ask you, as a writer, how many words a day do you challenge yourself to write? Uh, on average, 1,500. Wow, uh, so a bad day is 1,000, a good day is 2,000 or more. But it's totally, you know, fl fluctuates wildly compared to, because of the events I do and uh, children and life and wow, so, so on. And also, what's, it like being a, what's it like being a dad? Ah, it's great. It's great. My my kids are 13 and 10. Uh, my son's called Ferdia, which is a, an ancient Irish name. And he's actually the main character in my new book, which is about Richard the Lionheart. I've got an Irishman in my new there book. There you go. He's kind of a big deal. He made it. Yeah, he doesn't realize it, though. But he doesn't really. <laughs> I don't think until I actually hand him the book next summer. But my daughter's called Pippa. And yeah, they're great. They're one of the things I'm realizing. Uh, have you got kids? I do. I, I've got a 10-year-old boy, Leo. Uh, and a six-year-old girl named Elsa, like the movie. Oh, fantastic. Okay, yeah. so so you're just a few years behind, but you know you know what it's like. So your parents say, and everybody of the older generation, they always say to you, oh, they grow up so quickly, you must enjoy it. And you think, yeah, yeah, you know, when you can't get any sleep and their babies, yeah. whatever, it seems like eternity. But right. my, my son, I see you, yeah, you're nodding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how did you know again? You got it Yeah. Down. <laughs> so my son, but my son will be finished school in five years and that's not very long. And then he, I don't know what he'll do, but he, he, you know, the likelihood is he will be moving out of home then or very soon after and he'll come back to visit, but then he's gone. And, and seven years from now, my daughter will be doing the same. And then, wow, how did that happen? Uh, so one of the things I've done this year is I've really just kind of gone, I'm going to spend more and more as much time as i can with my family i'm going to make that a more of a focus i've always tried to stay focused on that but more of a focus because i can see the sands going through the hourglass um so i walked hadrian's wall with my son this summer he was only 12 and we did that in a school holiday over a week and it was fantastic that sounds nice. yeah and i came back and my daughter you know she's very competitive like all siblings and she said she wanted to do it that's her you're only 10 and she said and more or less so i'm going to be walking it with her next year and she'll only be 11 so so yeah i'm looking forward to that that's that's pretty neat and so when are you going to become a professor i mean there has to be a university that say mr ben kane would you come would you would you come speak would you come teach um is this going to be the next chapter of your life no, no. Um, I have had the honor um, of being given an honorary Doctor of Letters by Bristol University, which was incredible a few years ago. Uh, so I could actually call myself Dr. Kane, but... Um, I think you should. I, I think it's a cool name, Dr. Kane. <laughs> I, I feel embarrassed about it most of the time. If I'm looking for um, 
I slotted a really prestigious literary festival. I always tell my publishers to use the Dr. Kane, but, Absolutely. but otherwise, <laughs> I know what, what's a couple of the things that I do now, uh, cause you know, when you write full time, which I am unbelievably lucky to do and so grateful, but because a lot of in the UK, for example, one in every seven, only one in every seven traditionally published authors is full time. Hmm. So the rest of them actually can't afford to be full time and they have to work in another job. But um, when you work full time as an author, I basically live in a shed, uh, which is cold, um, despite trying to heat it. It's got no central heating. And I'm not complaining because it's quiet, but uh, it's very cold. And I live in my head all year round. Now, if you do that for however many years writing books, you become a little bit strange. Uh, now I may be considered eccentric already. Um, <laughs> you want to know? Uh, I don't want to be any more eccentric. Yeah. So are read? I mean, are we talking like you become that writer? It's just—it's a very isolate. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm making a joke out of it, and I've got obviously the kids are here, and my wife, and we have friends, and I do go—I help out with the school runs and stuff. So I'm not totally isolated, but the, I'm making a humorous point, which is as a as a serious basis, which is that when I was a veterinarian. I would meet, I worked with anywhere between 10 and 20 colleagues. I would meet 20 to 50 members of the public every day. Hello, how are you? How's little Fufu Trixie Bell? Oh, let's give it an injection, give you a wormer. Oh, he's coming in for his operation. We'll sort them all out for you. And same in the evening, how are you? Come back tomorrow. You know, it was a very, very gregarious uh, job. And I liked that. So one of the downsides of being a writer is you just, you lose that instantly unless you, okay, Facebook and Twitter is great, but it's not the same as meeting people. So what I do now is I've been lucky enough, again, depends how long you've got, but uh, I work uh, as a bike guide for a, a bike company run by an archeologist who does these epic bike journeys. So if any of your uh, viewers want to cycle from Barcelona to Rome over the Alps for one month, you know, staying in nice hotels, nice food, nice wine, and I do the history every day. That's what I do. Um, not full time by any means, but I do a few, a few weeks of that every year. And I, I do it because I love it. Um, you know, if someone pays me to cycle in the sunshine in Italy and talk about Romans. Uh -huh. and how if I could do, if I could do it for more each year, I would, but um, you know, obviously kids and the main, the main thing, write a book every year because that's what else and, and I wouldn't ever want to stop doing that but I do these other I also work for another tour company which does normal tourism quote unquote where you go to Pompeii and Herculaneum and I'm your guide and um, so when my readers are some of them who came on my first tour of that were so keen for me to do another one that I'm possibly next year going to organize my own trip to Roman Germany where I'll hire the bus and you have to fly in, but I'll organize the hotels and I'll hire the bus and we'll drive around for a week and we'll go to all these places that are in my books. That sounds great. And yeah, well, you'd be more than welcome. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, I, my final question, I promise you this would be an easy interview today, easy conversation. Who's the toughest person you've ever known in your life? Who got you through the tough days? Who believed in you? Um, and who, uh, yeah, who's held you accountable all these years? Who's held my cannonball? Who, who yeah, or, or who's held you accountable? <laughs> be, uh, oh, accountable, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> remember, this is life stuff. You could be tougher. So who got you through it? 
That's a really good question. Uh, I'm going to go with my mother um, because she's been through a lot in her own life um, with health, various health issues and so on. I mean, she's fine, thank goodness. She's nearly 80, but um, she has never not believed in me. Um, so when I wanted to become a full-time author, about, I'd say, 50%, maybe more than 50% of my family and friends, so in, including my own brother and a couple of my closest friends, they were said to me, oh, you know, you don't want to give up your job as a veterinarian. It's a good job, solid job. How do you know you're going to make a go of this? It might be the wrong decision. Did You know, like sort of trying to almost hold me back. And my mother just said, go for it. Just absolutely go for it. Um, and so did my wife, to be fair. So, you know, she she's a she's very tough as well and has always been there for me uh always you know make sure that she tries to support me in every way she can and uh certainly our life our life you know would be very different if it wasn't for her so sounds like you've got some amazing people in your life yeah 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 sure have yeah well final uh, thoughts or comments you have to to the listeners out there in, in our 74 countries that are now talking to or seeing ben kane <laughs> That's a good question. A lot of Just, I, man. I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's been a real pleasure. It's really nice to meet you. I know I'm not, you know, it's not well. physically, but very nice to meet you and chat with you. And um, I'll be, I'll be uh, watching some of your videos for sure because uh, you, you've got a lot of interesting um, people that you've had on. So thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm honored, Ben, that you shared your time with us today. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Life's tough, everybody. Ben Kane is tougher. Ben, thanks for yeah. joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. We'd like to thank Ben again for joining us on today's episode of Life's Tough, You Could Be Tougher. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more different or more powerful than my own story. You cannot discount the single impact of any experience you go through in your life. From becoming a veterinarian to becoming an author, Ben found his purpose. I challenge you to find your purpose. What drives you? What pulls others towards you? What can you do different in your life going forward that will make an impact? The legacy that Ben leaves behind is one that will inspire the world to dream big, will inspire us to remember what's happened. Because as Ben said, history has a way of repeating itself. I challenge you. Don't allow history in your own life to repeat itself by doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. It will take courage. It will take you deciding what you will do with your life, how you will stand up to the bullies, and how you will live the rest of your days. You can be stuck in a career or in a job that may not be your purpose, or you can find your purpose and you can find your way. Thank you for joining us today on this edition. Remember, life's tough. You can be tougher. This is Dustin Planelt signing off from the Austin Carlisle Studios in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks again for joining us. Looking forward to the next one with you. Bye-bye.